we looked at body condition score of about a hundred sows on each sow farm as well when we did the perineal scoring. And that was another observation. The sows that were thin um, had a higher prolapse incidence rate than those that were uh, ideal or overweight. And that was counter to what we kind of thought would be happening or what we thought we would observe. We thought the maybe the overweight sows would have a higher incidence rate, but it was actually the thin sows tended to have a greater probability of prolapsing. Did you know that the pig's microbiota has more than 400 species of fungi and bacteria, yielding approximately 10 times more cells than those in the pig's body? These microbes are at the nexus of health and productivity as they communicate with each other and with the pig's organs and systems. Filio, Pylosoff, is committed to pushing the boundaries of animal health and nutrition and well-being to better nourish and feed our world. United with our partners, we are key influencers in the quest to discover, define, and manipulate the pig's microbiome to significantly improve pig lifetime health and productivity. This podcast series is provided to help increase your understanding of these exciting and thought-provoking topics. Welcome to today's Filio Pig Microbiome Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Joe Lockmiller, Senior Swine Technical Services Manager for North America. Thank you for joining us today for this discussion of new frontiers in the pig microbiome, physiology, and well-being. I'd like to welcome everyone here today to our episode of the Pig Microbiome Podcast. My guest today is Dr. Jason Ross, Professor of Animal Science from Iowa State University. Jason, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, you bet. It's great to be with you, Joe. Would, would you mind giving our listeners just a little bit of background about uh, maybe your professional history, uh, where you've come from, where you're at today, and, and some of the work that you've been involved in? Sure. Happy to do that. Yeah. My uh, academic career kind of started after I finished my undergraduate degree at, at Iowa State University, and I went to graduate school and did my master's degree and PhD work at Oklahoma State University. And then I spent uh, a little over a year and a half at the uh, University of Missouri doing a postdoc and then was able to join the faculty at Iowa State in 2008. And um, and really, I've had an interest and a focus on swine reproductive physiology since joining uh, Iowa State University. And so over the last, uh, I guess, close to 14 years now or 10, 13 and a half years, um, you know, just really focused on several aspects of reproductive physiology and um, sow farm, sow efficiency, sow farm productivity. And one of the things that's really started to you know, crop up in the last decade is the incidence of pelvic organ prolapse and or POP. And so that's, you know, become uh, a component of some of the work that my lab's focused on uh, right now is trying to better understand the physiology and the etiology of pelvic organ prolapse. And we do a lot of other work as well. We've done some work focused on heat stress and reproduction. We've ran some projects on guilt development. Um, we have a, several members of our group have uh, focused on gene editing and we've made some pigs with uh, genetic modifications, both for agriculture and for uh, human medicine purposes. So um, kind of a broad, broad uh, application or a broad lab, I guess you could say in some respects, but um, also have some very applied projects relative to, to sows as well. Okay. Okay. 
Thank you. That's um, that's really very interesting. And so, um, the the idea of the of the pelvic organ prolapse. So that's that's not a new um, concept to those in North America that are concerned with it, both in production and in research. But I think a common term that people would refer to it as would be a uterine prolapse, maybe out in the field. If that's right, that's accurate. Uh, for those of our international listeners, um, can you give us just a bit of background on this pelvic organ prolapse, the the problem, and then how you're characterizing um, as you try to to develop research protocols around the causes of this, how you characterize maybe the predisposition for that, uh, the POP? Sure, sure. So, you know, we started thinking about this back in around 2017 and actually put a proposal together and we're, we're funded by the National Pork Board to start doing some survey work with the industry. And what had happened is the incidence of pelvic organ prolapse, which, um, you know, broadly includes rectal prolapses, uh, vaginal prolapses and uterine prolapses. Uh, the incidence overall was tended to be increasing year over year um, across the U.S. industry. And it's almost always results in the euthanasia of the sow um, and, and then oftentimes results in the loss of piglets as well. So, um, so it was, a, you know, uh, one of those non-compete issues by the industry. And so the industry was really rallied around supporting or encouraging uh, National Pork Board. And Chris Hostetler at the time was the, the director of the Animal Science Committee and helped allocate some money towards uh, funding a survey of the industry to help better get a get a better understanding really of the overall incidence that was being observed across different production systems and uh, across different geographies and genetics, et cetera, to try to start finding places that we could explore um, that were maybe uh, would help us understand the under underlying physiology that pre precedes a, a pelvic organ prolapse. And so that project kicked off in 2018, and we uh, worked with uh, 104 different sow farms across 15 different states uh, in the U.S. And we, we had a program specialist in the Iowa Pork Industry Center, worked every week with sow farm managers for those 104 sow farms to collect all sow mortality data. So. And we just put them into broad categories, you know, lame, you know, cause for causes of death, whether it's lameness or unknown or pelvic organ prolapse. And during the course of that project, you know, we asked a lot of information for each of these sow farms related to diet, related to management strategies, to barn and facilities, um, everything that we could think to ask at the time. And we also did site visits for 62 of those sow farms and collected data on individual sows during late gestation um, and also you know made some observations uh, regarding the sow farm and, and different facilities and things like that um, just to help create a database that then we could go back and analyze so during the course of that project it lasted for a full year and during the course of that we would send out weekly reports to um, each of the farms that submitted data so that they could see um, where their farm uh, was was ranking compared to the other 103 farms in the study. So uh, every farm was anonymized that they that every individual and, and every system that had more than one farm could see where their farms were 
comparing to the rest of the farms on the study. So I think that was really important piece of that because it helped create um, kind of a, a collective interest in the project, right? Because there was, you know, 13 different larger production systems involved. There was also 19 independent sow farms. So there's just, uh, you know, across 15 different states. So we generated a lot of interest and momentum behind the, the overall project in the area of research. And when we went on to the sow farms that we visited, we uh, had created a, a perineal scoring system. And so one of the things that we did, we would go into late gestation and look at sows that were, you know, within a few days of farrowing. So oftentimes it would be those that had just gotten loaded into the farrowing crates, but had not yet farrowed. And, you know, we, we made this three point scoring system based on the perineal, perineal area that uh, one would be those that had very little swelling in the, in the vulva and rectal area. Uh, two would be moderate swelling and protrusion and a three would be severe swelling and protrusion. And what we found was that subsequently those sows that were scored a three had a much higher uh, incidence of prolapse than those that were scored a one or a two. The other thing that we noticed as well is that farms that had an higher average perineal score also had higher uh, incidence of prolapse on a whole farm basis. So that was an important observation, I think, coming out of that project because it really gave us then the ability to go back in and identify sows as high or low risk so that we could create and design experimental uh, approaches to better understand some of the physiological differences that might be, uh, uh, might be occurring in sows that were high risk for prolapse as opposed to those that were low risk for prolapse. And I think that's important just because the overall incidence of prolapse, um, you know, might be three to 4% annualized mortality um, on a sow farm. That's a, that's a lot when you think about it over a year, but it's not that much when you think about it week to week. And if you're trying to test and develop a intervention or a mitigation strategy to get the number of observations to determine if you're uh, intervention is statistically effective, right? Or if it's effective from a statistical standpoint. So having something where you can score the, uh, another marker on every animal that's associated with prolapses, we thought was a, a good leading measure that we could utilize. Um, some other things that came out of that survey, and I'll come back to the, to the perineal scoring uh, and the, how we use the, the, that score and a few other subsequent studies in a minute. But some other things that came out of that, you know, we looked at body condition score of about 100 sows on each sow farm as well when we did the perineal scoring. And that was another observation. The sows that were thin um, had a higher incidence, higher prolapse incidence rate than those that were uh, ideal or overweight. And that was counter to what we kind of thought would be happening or what we thought we would observe. We thought the maybe the overweight sows would have a higher incidence rate, but it was actually the thin sows um, tended to have a greater probability of prolapsing. And others have looked at that since then as well and have seen the, a similar observation. So I think that's um, one of those things that's practical, right? You can go into the farm today and start looking at, hey, what are we, how are we managing our thin sows? And are we managing them closely during that last month to six weeks of of gestation, are we really watching their body condition and giving a lot of attention to those individual sows? 
couple of questions that occur to me as I as I listen to this, and and I'm marginally familiar with this information as well. Um, were there any uh, across all of these farms? Were there any correlations between um, genetics or breed? Um, you know, when you look at uh, land race, large white, Duroc based, uh, you know, or or any of those issues, parity. Uh, you mentioned body condition score, uh, health status. I don't, you know, um, in addition to all of these, uh, all of these measures you're collecting. Yeah, we did collect uh, information on genetics, right? And the difficulty there is that we didn't design the survey around comparing genetics. So what happens then is that there's certain things such as, you know, maybe one system uses uh, pelleted feed and another system would use mash feed. Well, they also, and they have two different genetics. Well, they might have each, each of those groups might have 10 farms that are on the study. Well, that's a confounding variable, right? So if one of those has higher prolapse rates than the other, you don't know if it's because of the genetics or it's because of some of these other management practices that are very consistent within one system that are not within the other. And so, those were really difficult to, to parse out. And I think um, from the genetic standpoint, I think there's a little bit uh, of work that's starting to come out and, and be published at, at meetings, at least in abstract form, um, to suggest that there might be some heritability in certain lines and other lines, there's not heritability. So, um, so I think that's something that we need to keep our pulse on, but we didn't really, um, you know, we had enough information to say, well, that, that's an area that we should pursue further and design experiments that may be more that are more focused on exploring the genetic contributions but we weren't able to say that you know specific lines had a higher rate than others you know the other thing that that comes to my mind is i know back in 2018 2019 when this problem um maybe even 2017 a little bit earlier than that when this problem was coming to the forefront of the industry before the national pork board had funded uh, there were a lot of people that just were trying to shotgun a lot of different uh, interventions. And so I'm yes. aware of some nutritional interventions, some coated calcium chloride that was tried, maybe some coated organic acids, a variety of other things. And uh, to my knowledge, none of them really showed consistent effect. Is that is that an accurate assessment? Yeah, I think so. You know, a lot of a lot of people you know, pursued, you know, things that I think were really logical, um, you know, strategies from an intervention standpoint. And, and most of them have been, you know, um, overall, not super successful, right? And inconsistent at best. Inconsistent yeah. at the best. Yeah, you're right. And that's, you know, partly because it's really hard to do a controlled assessment on those things. And one thing I can tell you, with with pelvic organ prolapse is, you know, kind of comes in spurts at a south farm. So, you know, you might see two or three or four weeks in a row where it seems like it's a real bad problem, and then you'll have a lull for two or three weeks, right? And then it'll pop back up. Well, when that happens, because of the nature of it, the week-to-week -week variation, it's really hard to implement a, uh, an experiment that, you know, it, it takes into account the, the variation from week to week, right? So it's hard to put half of a sow farm on a nutritional intervention. So um, the way the feed lines work. So we have done some studies in our group where we've gone in and, and uh, 
you know, tried to apply an intervention on half of each breed week. And, and, you know, that's, that's very labor intensive, right? So, and it takes a long time to get enough observations to determine if there was an effect on pelvic organ prolapse. Sure. Sure. So with that kind of background, you and, and the research team that you're involved with on this project, you've crossed off a number of things that you didn't think were directly related or correlated to it, but you've been able then to identify some some target areas of opportunity. Yeah. 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 You know, so one of the things that um, that we that we saw, you know, in addition to the body condition score and the perineal score, you know, we you know, one of the lines of thought there is that, you know, some of that change in body condition could be the result of uh, an immunological challenge, right? So, so for a sow that's getting a fixed amount of feed, if she has a immunological challenge, that's going to have, um, you know, significant increase in glucose requirements or energy requirements to elicit a, a proper immune response. And so, you know, we started looking at some of those those pieces of that uh, of that puzzle, and and so what we did was we went into sow farms and collected some blood samples on sows that were a high perineal score, and sows that had a low or a, a three perineal score, and sows that are also in, that were in the same parity that had a perineal score of a one or low risk for prolapse. And what we saw in the samples that we looked at was that there was. Uh, fewer monocytes and lymphocytes in circulation of sows that were high risk for prolapse. And we also saw that LPS binding protein, uh, which is a marker of inflammation, was elevated in those sows. And so to, to us that indicated, right, we don't know for sure, but the thought process is that um, perhaps if there's a, a localized tissue response, right, in the, in the reproductive tract or the perineal area, that immune cells being trafficked to that region might help explain in part why we would see a reduction of circulating lymphocytes and monocytes. And so um, then along with that, right, we started uh, coming along the, the idea of, you know, are there, uh, are there microbes or, or, uh, or microorganisms that could be uh, present in the reproductive tract that are helping there in some part or some way contributing or playing a role in that in that process. And so, you know, that kind of went back to some of our earliest thoughts in 2017 and 2018, trying to explore the literature to understand why we're seeing this. And if you look at um, human literature, what you what you see is that one of the things that sort of observations associated with pelvic organ prolapse is pelvic inflammatory disease. And one of the precursors to pelvic inflammatory disease are oftentimes that's associated with um, sexually transmitted diseases. And so that kind of got the thought process, is there a potential that there's um, some level of microorganism or pathogen that's, that's affecting some sows um, that maybe is contributing to this puzzle of you know, sows that are at risk for pelvic organ prolapse. And so along with when we collected that blood, we took vaginal swabs on uh, from two different farms. We took vaginal swabs and, and worked with uh, Dr. Stefan Schmitz-Ester's lab here at Iowa State University. He's a microbiologist. And we did 16S ribosomal sequencing on those samples and um, started to identify if there's differences between sows, the vaginal microflora of sows that are 
a perineal score of one compared to those that are a three. And it turns out that there is, there's a shift in the community, uh, the, the microbiota uh, between those two cells. But then there's also appears to be in, in some cases, specific bugs that were differentially abundant in the reproductive tract of sows that were high risk, such as uh, Streptococcus dysgalactiae, some of the trepanemas, um, and, and a few other microorganisms. And we published that paper. Prevotella was one you mentioned as well. Yeah, yeah. Prevotella was yeah. one as well that was in that in that in those publications. So that kind of supported that notion, right? That um, maybe that help ex helps explain some of the monocyte lymphocytes observations that we made. It helps explain the LPS binding protein. Um, and, and it might also help demonstrate some relationship to this, these cells, cells that are in a thin body condition um, being the most susceptible to pelvic organ prolapse. So then we subsequently, we thought, well, that's a pretty interesting observation. So we thought we should replicate that experiment. And then we actually then worked with uh, another production system with a different genetic background and collected several hundred more uh, swabs from cells that were high and low risk for pelvic organ prolapse and saw some of the same observations. And so we published both of those studies in, in 2021. So that data is out there in the, in the, in the public domain now, but you know, so I, you know, how, so that's still that again, that's correlation, right? Not causation. So I think that's where we're wanting to move to is how can we demonstrate causation? So can we one do something that, uh, mitigates pelvic organ prolapse and then now does that mitigation is that associated with the shift um, in the vaginal microbiome that would also be associated with low risk of pelvic organ prolapse and so that's where we're trying to design our uh you know future studies around that concept and using the vaginal microbiota as kind of a a signature of um reproductive health that may be associated with with uh um you know pelvic organ prolapse this podcast has been brought to you by the experts at filio by lasoff one of the largest primary fermentation organizations in the world we are driving research and nutritional innovation to support swine health using natural and sustainable methods so as you look at that, one of the one of the areas that you also mentioned at the October Survivability Conference was the initial efforts to at least look at one antimicrobial, uh, because yeah. I think in I think in at least one of those trials you identified Clostridium yeah. as potential causative agent or a, a an a, a disease uh, organism of interest. Right. And, right. and and since BMD is is known to help control Clostridium infections. Um, yeah, you, you went you went with that direction, and and as I recall, it didn't really show much change in POP status or uh, or uh, organ prolapse incidence, but you did see an improvement in uh, stillbirths and and some of these other things. But as uh, the reason that I'm asking this question or going this direction is that when you're looking at other interventions, are you continuing to look at other antimicrobials, some that might be more uh, effective against streptococcus, for example, or yeah, uh, other agents out there. It is and the good. reason that I ask that is I know there's other institutions that are starting to look at things like probiotics and the potential for probiotics to influence. What influence does that have on the gut microbiome? And then is there a link between the gut microbiome and the and the 
reproductive microbiome, reproductive right. tract. Yeah. Yeah, I think those are actually, Joe, those are all really good points. And, um, you know, first off on the BMD, on the BMD study, I think, you know, that was one of those projects where we took the approach where we split each breed week into a control and a treatment group. Yeah. And you're, you're right. We didn't, we didn't observe a reduction in POP on the, during the period of time that we ran the study on that set of animals. Um, but we did see a, reduction in stillbirths. And interestingly, the biggest component of the, the largest, I guess, contributor to that reduction in stillbirths was in the sows that scored a perineal score of three. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the other thing I can tell you from other data that we've evaluated is that, you know, we haven't seen a litter size or a total born influence on pelvic organ prolapse, but we have seen that sows that prolapse after farrowing um, so during lactation, uh, have a statistically higher number of stillborn piglets. And so, you know, there might be some relationship there. And I, I can't put my finger on exactly what it is, but, um, you know, reducing stillbirths may have some beneficial. Not only do you have the benefit of, you know, having a greater uh, number of live horns, but you also may have a, uh, some benefit to reproductive health and subsequent prolapse. Yeah, so, yeah. I, I would agree with that as well, just in my experience. Yeah. Um, the the thought that comes along with that is, so you've mentioned, you know, that that you've been able to identify that there is uh, an increased incidence of of uh, inf- infl- markers of inflammation, inflammatory markers. Um, and then the change in the microbiome has also been characterized. Do you have any idea whether the inflammation causes the change in the vaginal microbiome or the other way around kind yeah. of a chicken and egg question i know right but, right yeah. yeah no it's a great question and I, unfortunately we don't have the answer to it at this time you know that would come back to needing to probably develop some studies where you could really use an anti-inflammatory approach um and determine if then that affects the the microbiome or if you can alter the microbiome does that affect um the inflammation that we're observing so um, you know, I think that that's, you know, it's a great question. I think it just needs to probably have some, you know, develop some, some really good hypotheses to test around that, uh, concept and then use some hypothesis driven approaches to, you know, conduct those proper experiments to evaluate that. Yeah. Yeah. A couple of other questions that have kind of come to mind as I've, um, thought about this issue is. Are are you familiar with the work that's been done on immune training? And in other words, you know, uh, for example, the USDA Crystal Loving's lab has done some work on this where it's the innate immune system. So you talk about monocytes and lymphocytes and and there's it's the idea that you that the that the innate innate immune system, which we didn't used to think could be trained, can actually be trained to recognize um, you know, bacterial diseases more quickly and more be more responsive. And and then tie that to the question of, do you think that there is a link between the cecal microbiome and the and then the vaginal microbiome of these sows? Because I'm always surprised when I with how many links there are between the different microbiome right. populations. Yeah. Right. Right. You know that's a good question. In fact, 
you know, on the last study that we published, um, you know, at the end of 2021, it's in the bio in biology of reproduction. In that study, you know, we also had collected um, the fecal swabs from all of those sows, and we then subsequently went back and sequenced um, all of those samples and have begun analysis of that. And and are currently a couple of graduate students are currently evaluating that to try to determine is there particular relationships between the fecal microbiota and and that in the vaginal uh, uh, you know uh, area as well, right? So what is that relationship? Are there certain microorganisms that would be um, more affected by one uh, site than the other or influenced by one site than uh, if one site's abundant, does it affect the abundance in another site on the animal and vice versa? So that's something we're still sorting through, right? It's extremely complex um, to make those you know, to do those evaluations, right? And those analyses, because you're talking about hundreds and hundreds of microorganisms in each of those two tissue sites, and then trying to determine on a hundred different animals, right? What that relationship may or may not be between those. And so, um, yeah, that's, it's, a, it's an interest of us, uh, of ours, right? Because we, we do want to understand how we can, um, if you can alter that, then if there is a relationship, right? Presumably, the fecal microbiome would be easier to alter than the vaginal. But again, that's not. Yeah, and, then, and then you can start looking at nutritional interventions rather than. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that comes back to the probiotic, you know, point that you made right. earlier that, that people are pursuing. So. Yeah. And whether it's probiotics, prebiotics, antimicrobials, whatever else. I mean, you know, the interesting thing is, is everybody, the, the challenge that we've got is, is that we're, we're just discovering all of these links, whether there's the, it's the gut lung axis, the gut brain axis, and now potentially the gut and reproductive tract axis and, and all of the different uh, changes in the microbiome. And, and yet we know that the microbiome, at least at the gut level can change day to day based upon uh, various ingredients. You know, there's there's research out there showing that you can change uh, the uh, level of methionine in a sow's diet or in a pig's diet and change their their hindgut microbiome. Right. So, you know, relatively simple things. So we're I think we're a long way from from trying to characterize those one or two markers that are the you know that's the silver bullet to change everything else. But at least understanding okay. right. that it's a relationship that there are things that we can or can't do. And and like you've said, crossing off those things that are uh, inconsistent in their response and understanding where there's the consistent uh, return on the investment. Um, yeah. As you look at where you're, where you're pursuing uh, research going forward with the vaginal microbiome and, and understanding this uh, the the prevalence of uh, POP3 status sows in the herd and and trying to reduce that prevalence. Uh, what are some of the areas that that you're pursuing today that you think, gosh, this this seems like it's an interesting uh, and it might might bear some fruit? Yeah, you know, I'm st I'm still interested in the role of antibiotics and the reason being in the in the survey study that we conducted. Um, one of the observations that we made is that there was a tendency that when antibiotic pulses, and it was primarily CTC in those uh, at, at that time when we were doing the survey work, that there would consistently be a reduction not only in sow mortality, but often in sow mortality as a result of POP as well. 
And so, um, so antibiotic pulses, and I've, and I've heard from other groups as well that have done antibiotic pulses, that they consistently see a reduction in mortality and POP-induced mortality on sow farms when they do an antibiotic pulse. So there's, that seems to be an area that we need to continue to understand. And that's where I think there's, you know, and that's, that's kind of the, the fix, right? Where you can help see the, um, you know, that you can kind of see the result of an intervention and it kind of helps, I think, direct us a little bit towards um, diagnosing, right? Now it doesn't diagnose the whole problem, um, but it, it does give some insights. And I think it's a really, the way I've been looking at it is it's, it seems to me like it's a very complex equation, right? That's influencing POP outcome on a sow farm. And I think there's some additive factors and I think there's some multiplying factors and, and trying to determine which each of those pieces and that equation, where they fit in that equation is, is really where we're at. Right. And so we have some of those pieces, right? We have you know, use of antimicrobials gives us some insight. The use of body condition stores giving us some insight. Um, you know, other factors that seem to be players, you know, genetics, et cetera. So trying to figure out what that environmental components are, um, what the health components are, what the genetic components are, and how we can kind of create and solve that equation so that then we can kind of work backwards, right? And the, those factors that seem to have a multiplying effect, let's start mitigating those first. Yeah. Um, and then we can start mitigating those that have an additive effect. Yeah, yeah. That's one of the, uh, as you're describing this, I'm getting this idea in my mind of, you know, trying to put together a thousand piece puzzle without having any, any idea what the final picture is supposed to look like. And right. that's kind of the challenge of science in general. Right, um, right. But uh, but it's fun when you can draw those linkages together and 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 obviously really rewarding. I've had a few of those experiences, and I know you have as well. Yeah, I'm I'm excited to see where you're going with this. Quite honestly, because uh, as an example, and and not to uh, shamelessly promote our products too much in this, but uh, we've had a couple of experiences where we've actually um, inadvertently. Uh, we don't we don't have it defined clearly yet or not, but inadvertently we think that we've seen some cases in some nursery research where we've been able to reduce the incidence of strep um, associated morbidity and mortality with some yeast extracts. And and so as I think about the work that's been done on immune training, the, the hindgut and fermentation of probiotics and us being a supplier of, of probiotics, uh, and then you're talking about uh, antimicrobials and trying to target and and identify where these opportunities exist. It, to me, it's really an exciting frontier, um, they, and and understanding where these relationships occur. As as I go back to the to the use of the antimicrobials or the antibiotics, did it matter when they do those pulsing what method the application is, whether it's uh, oral, injectable, or suppository type application? You know, the majority of that was in was feed right it was delivered and via feed to the whole farm at once right so um so we didn't really have any data to evaluate delivery method yeah. okay okay but you make a good point right the whole area i mean it's just um yeah we certainly we know a lot more than we knew three four years ago but we still don't know way more than what we do know and um yeah. so there is a lot of opportunity for exploration, understanding how um, strategies might 
you know, might come together, what the role of probiotics, antibiotics, how those can be utilized effectively and what that effective strategy is um, to result in the, in the best reproductive health. I think there's lots of opportunities and, and work that needs to be done in that realm. As we think back to the, uh, the incidence of those uh, pathogens in the vaginal microbiome that you've, that you've sampled, do you have any idea when those pathogens would be introduced into that environment or when they would start to proliferate? Maybe not introduced, but proliferate. Is it a, is it a mid-late gestation issue? Is it a guilt development issue? Any, any just ideas yeah. or suspicions? <laughs> you know, I would be guessing if, uh, on any answer here, but... You know, I, I could imagine, you know, multiple scenarios, right? It could be one of those that there's a, an exposure, but really something else happens in that uh, in that sow or gill during your pregnancy um, that maybe is an additive effect, right? So you have a, an immune insult that gives a, a pathogen an opportunity to uh, take advantage, right, and proliferate uh, in, in that particular instance so that maybe three, four um, weeks later, um, there's, there's not a stressor in the sow farm that, that would create that immune challenge in that, in those animals. And so those pathogens don't have the opportunity to proliferate, right. And they're, and they're dealt with through the immune system of, of the animal. And so I think that's, you know, and, and if that's the case, right, it could be one of those things that's, you know, there's an exposure that happens early in life that then manifests, um, you know, during gestation and during pregnancy. But, you know, we also see that sows that are five, six parodies um, into production, you know, can prolapse and a sow that's on her first parody can prolapse. So um, it seems to be, you know, a pregnancy, an interaction and a relationship with the pregnant stage of pregnancy and that the sows are primarily afflicted in late gestation and um, that the prolapses are primarily happening within a couple of days of fairing before or after or during. Is there any efforts underway to maybe just try and mitigate or reduce the, uh, the level of inflammation just with some analgesics or NSAIDs, some of those kind of? Yeah, you know, I think there have been a few that have tried some strategies and have not seen uh, a strong response, a strong positive okay. response. We have not done that study um, ourselves. One of the things I would say is that, you know, anytime, you know, a group tries something or an individual or a lab research group or production system tries a strategy, I think it's important to really take all the components, right? And, and then evaluate why that might've worked, why they might've seen the response that they, that they saw or didn't see the response that they were expecting. And so one of the things that I think is, you know, Interesting is even though the the pelvic organ prolapse event doesn't happen until close to farrowing, you know, plus or minus a couple of days. I think that you know one of the things that we've seen with the perineal score is that sows that develop or become a perineal score of three, oftentimes that will start two to three weeks before farrowing, right? So the the underlying problem that manifests as a prolapse actually could be starting two to three weeks earlier. And, you know, our mitigation strategy sometimes maybe is a good idea or a, a logical idea from a mitigation standpoint that's just applied too late. Um, we may not see a response and it could just be timing of that application. So we're just not looking far enough upstream, maybe. Interesting. Interesting. 
if people have more interest in um, doing some of their own background and and uh, understanding this this a little bit more, maybe what articles or or what resources would you point them to? Um, they can certainly email you directly if they wanted to reach out to you through Iowa State, but at the same time, um, um, you know, your time is is valuable yeah. as well, and and so. Yeah, I, I think one one place that I would start is to go back to the survey work that we did that kind of shows some of the information on body condition score and perineal score. That's posted on um, it's on the National Pork Board website, but it's also if you go to our uh, piglivability.org, um, that's our project website. That's uh, you know our large pig survivability or pig livability effort that's um, across all phases of of pork production. If you go to that web page, um, there there is some resources and includes the you know the 30, 40 page uh, final report from that project. It also includes some video resources on pelvic organ prolapse. And I would start there and you know, and then there's also, you know, if, if they're interested in peer-reviewed literature, you know, um, that's the links to that are posted on that website as well, I believe. So, you know, I think that would be the name of that again. Uh, piglivability.org piglivability.org just all one word or yep. and then .org. okay yeah and you know there's actually a um if folks want to sign up they can put their email address in there and sign up for notifications and then oftentimes when we put new information up on that website uh, we'll send out a uh, we'll send out a message as well and notify people so we also you know uh have a pig x podcast um that you know that's always, uh, you know, right now is always focused on a topic related to pig livability. So sometimes that's, you know, wean to finish, sometimes it's nursery or colostrum disease. You know, that's another resource. You can go to that uh, and kind of glean through some of our uh, podcasts on different topics on on sow health as well. Very good. Yeah, that's a, that's a very good podcast. I'm also um, subscribed to that one as, along with several others and, and enjoy it. So. Well, Jason, I appreciate your time today, and yeah, thank you for sharing fun. your thank you for sharing your expertise with us. Really appreciate it. I appreciate you asking me. Thank you for joining us today. For additional information on Filio's swine programs, products, and recommendations, and research data regarding our work with the microbiome, animal performance, and well-being, please visit our website at filio-lasaf.com. Keep listening to future podcasts to learn more about the pig microbiome and research frontiers with gut physiology and the microbiome, or reach out to us directly through the website. Thank you, and have a great day.